Section 79 of China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 1, China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. Edited by Eva March Tapan. Section 79. War between China and Japan by W.A.P. Morton. Once upon a time, says a Japanese Aesop, the fish of the sea were thrown into consternation by the appearance of a new enemy, a man with a net and drag. Calling a council to provide for their safety, one proposed this, another that. The clam said that for himself he had no fear. He had only to close his shell to keep out all enemies. Splash! came the drag. The fish scattered, and he lay snug until all was quiet. Then, cautiously peeping out, he saw scrawled on an opposite wall, This clam, two cents, and he knew that he was sold. At the epoch of the Opium War, the attitude of China and Japan toward the outside world was identical. From that point, or to be exact, from 1854, the date of our first treaty with Japan, their policies diverge. Compelled to abandon her old exclusiveness, China has yielded as little as possible. Japan renounced hers without waiting for the application of force. Every step in Japan's progress has intensified the old animosity. China hates her as a traitor to the Asiatic traditions and she despises China as a laggard in the race. The first aggressions came from the side of Japan, as might have been expected from her awakened energies. She began with the absorption of Liu Chiu, which China regarded as her vassal, though the little kingdom, for its own purposes, had maintained a divided allegiance. Her next move was a descent on Formosa, ostensibly to punish the savages of the eastern coast for murdering the crew of a Liu Chiwan junk, in reality with the intention of occupying a port, if not the whole of that island. The right to do so the Japanese defended by specious arguments drawn from text writers on international law. These batteries the Chinese easily silence, as I can testify, having had something to do with the loading of their guns. The contest would not have ended without drawing blood if the British minister, Sir Thomas Wade, had not come forward as peacemaker and persuaded the invaders to withdraw on the payment of a small indemnity, which, to save the face of China, was considered as compensation for war material 
left on the island. A third storm center was Korea, confessedly a vassal of China. The Hermit Kingdom had been unwisely permitted to send embassies and enter into direct treaty relations with foreign courts, making the Korean capital a nest of intrigue. In 1878, the destruction of the Japanese consulate at Seoul came very near embroiling the two empires. In the dispute which followed, the Japanese won a diplomatic victory. China weakly consented to something like a dual control, which naturally had the effect of making the peninsula more than ever a bone of contention. A petty rebellion breaking out in 1894, the king appealed to China, not to Japan, for succor. The insurgents, who called themselves Tunghak, champions of Eastern learning, in opposition to Western innovations, dispersed on the appearance of Chinese troops, and the troops entrenched themselves on the sea coast. The Japanese were notified, and exercised their right of sending a force. But instead of camping on the coast, they pushed on to the capital for the better protection of king and court. Both parties, perceiving the real issue, pushed forward their troops as fast as their ships could carry them. Their ostensible object was to annihilate the Tunghaks. The real aim to settle at once and forever the question of Chinese supremacy. They kept up the forms of friendship until the twenty-fifth of July, when two collisions in one day compelled them to throw off the mask. Then came the shock of war, as unforeseen as an earthquake, and infinitely more destructive. In the earlier battles, the Chinese fought well. But they soon came to expect defeat as a matter of course. A constant succession of victories telling as much for the organizing talent of Japan at headquarters as for the courage and discipline of her forces in the field. In possession of king and capital, the Japanese enjoyed a great advantage. The poor king, as helpless as Matsuma. Bound himself by treaty to furnish supplies for their troops until the independence of Korea should be secured, and allowed himself to be persuaded into insulting his liege lord by assuming the title of emperor. How great their advantage will not be apparent unless we suppose the situation reversed, with a Chinese army in Seoul commanding the resources. Of the kingdom, who can say that the issue of the conflict might not have been otherwise? In that first bold stroke, the palm of strategy belongs to Japan. An incidental advantage, not to be overlooked, was the glamour of chivalry, which it gave her as the defender of the oppressed, enabling her to inscribe on her banners a noble object. Whatever arrière pensée she may have indulged, particularly this was shrewd, but knightly energy.
of that sort is out of date. Japan's action in taking the initiative is to be justified, if at all, on the ground that the disguised hostility of the Chinese made war inevitable sooner or later, and it was wise for her to strike when she was ready. Before spring, the Chinese had been driven out of Korea, and the Manchurian seaboard occupied by the Japanese. The two great naval fortresses had fallen into their hands, and the Chinese navy was annihilated. To save her capital, China sued for peace, and Japan stood revealed as a power no longer to be disregarded by the cabinets of Europe. End of section 79. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nikki 504, New Orleans.